Welcome back, everyone. Today we are going to be basically in Isaiah chapter 53. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, um, Austin's going to play the video that's kind of our theme song. It had to be a cross of love. So watch the video and enjoy it. I said yesterday, I just want to remind you that the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ on the cross is so magnificent, it's so multifaceted, that remember, we're just scratching the surface. For us to spend five days here in five sessions, we are nowhere near covering the whole of this. Okay, we are skipping all the way from the Passover to the Isaiah 53, the prophet, but in between there was another major event that was instituted. It was called the Day of Atonement, when the lambs would be slain and one would be the sin offering and one would be the scapegoat. So one took care of the sins and was burned entirely and one was sent out to the wilderness to signify the removal of sin and the removal of guilt. 
So when we're talking about the cross, we're talking about everything. Everything hangs on the cross. Our justification, our redemption, our adoption, reconciliation, sanctification, all of this comes up out of the cross. I better pray because I'm about to preach here. <laughs> Lord, Heavenly Father, God, how we thank you that this was a cross of love, that you sent your only son to die for us so that we might have life and have it to the full. Would you please enable me? I pray, Lord, that you would be in charge of my words, of my expressions, of my body gestures, of my facial expressions, of my timing, that we might see Jesus, our substitute, who died in our place and on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. So this is what the cross encompasses, so many things. But the cross is losing meaning in our culture. It used to mean something. It used to be a symbol. A cross used to be a clear symbol of Christianity. And you know what the cross is now? In many places, in many ways, it's little more than a piece of jewelry or a shape for a tattoo. But when you see the cross, my friends, you don't think of Hinduism. You don't think of Islam, you don't think of Buddha, you don't think of any other religion. Why? Because the cross points to Jesus Christ and to Christianity. Without the cross, there is no Christianity. Without the cross, there is no salvation from judgment, from sin, from death, and from hell. Without the cross, you and I are without God and without hope, and we are lost and we're dying and we're condemned. And without the cross, for me and for you, there is no hope. But oh, the cross of Jesus. But oh, the lamb who was slain, who takes away the sin of the world. So yesterday we looked at Passover and how it foreshadows the judgment and the redemption accomplished at the cross. And today we're going to see that 700 years before the cross, Isaiah the prophet saw it and foretold it in detail. But remember, context is everything. A text without a context is just a pretext. You can make it say whatever you want. I agree with Spurgeon when he said, Nobody would think of mutilating Milton's poems so, taking a few lines out of Paradise Lost, and then imagining he could really get at the heart of the poet's power. So we always have to look at the text in the connection in which they stand. So we looked at the Passover, the birth of the nation, the calling of the people out. Two to three million people coming out. They were all slaves one day. The next day they're marching out free with their heads held high. How could that possibly happen? I'll tell you how it could happen. Only by the blood of the Lamb. Only by the Passover Lamb. And here they are a nation. So what happens next? Well, you know the story of Moses and the exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And finally, eventually, after a lot of sin, after a lot of backsliding, they arrive into the land of promise. And under Joshua, the land is distributed and each family gets their peace. I love that. We each get a peace. And there's a verse in, in, in the New Testament that says, to each one of us grace has been given just as Christ apportioned it, as he apportioned it. Grace in your size and grace in my size. With our Redeemer, it is not one size fits all. With our Redeemer, it is not I treat all my kids equally. It is I love you individually where you are. And there's grace for you, whatever you're facing today, because of the cross of Christ, there's grace. And so they all got to their land, and, and then we, we go from being under Joshua to being in the time of the judges, and there's this repeated cycle in the life of the nation. And maybe it's a repeated cycle in the life of the believer, although it does not have to be. What's the cycle? Falling away, turning away from God, turning away from his rule, faith in him, then being oppressed by the enemy, being oppressed by the Philistines, the Midianites, and then there's cries of distress, oh God help us, oh God save us, oh God deliver us. And then God raises up deliverers or judges, Gideon, Deborah, all of these people, Samson, he raises them up. But that time frame is summarized in a one very telling statement, the time of the judgments. The older translations say, 
and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Do we not live in a culture where everyone does what is right in their own eyes? And then after the time of the judges, we see that, that then, then God sent Samuel to anoint Saul. There was, there was a kingdom then, Saul, then David, then David's sons. See, in the time of 1 Samuel 8, there was a lack of godly leadership, and they asked, caused the people to ask for a king, and so Samuel appointed the first kings. King Saul, King David, King Solomon, and then a time of division. And the nation was ripped in two. We call it the divided kingdoms. There's now, instead of just being the nation of Israel, there's the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. Existing side by side, it's almost as if the South won the Civil War. The two nations, same heritage, same God, same Bible, existing next to each other. All the kings in the northern kingdom did evil. And many of the ones in the southern kingdom did evil too. There's pressure. There's pressure all around them from the surrounding natures and the cultures. And it's causing the Israelites time and time again to turn away from Yahweh, the one true God. The only God that can save. The only God that can deliver. The only God that can give you an ability to walk with your head held high. And so God, who is full of grace and who's full of mercy, and God, who does nothing without telling the prophets first, sent prophets or preachers. God raised up men and women to proclaim his message and to verify his word. He raised up Joel and Amos and Obadiah, and he raised up Huldah, and he raised up others. And he raised up a man named Isaiah. And Isaiah is the prince of the prophets. Isaiah began his ministry basically in the year that King Uzziah died, which we know from history, 740 B.C. So 700 years before the time of Christ. During Isaiah's time, that's when the Assyrian Empire, just a little north of them, was really coming on strong, was building in power, and there was a decline going on in Israel. And so the book of Isaiah is God's message to his people that unveils the full dimension of his acts of judgment and his acts of salvation on behalf of his people. Isaiah is a fabulous book. It's a book of poetry and prose. The first 39 chapters are all about judgment. But chapter 40, you know, you can get some light at the end of the tunnel because in chapter 40, he says, comfort, comfort my people. Aren't you glad that we have a comforter who has been sent for us? Chapter 53 is probably one of the best known and the best loved chapters in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. It's frequently quoted in the New Testament. It's the fourth and the final of the servant songs, and it describes the Messiah. It explains how can a holy God bless people who are sinful, who are defiant, who are rebellious. And all the promises of God come true because of the suffering servant, because of the triumphant servant who remo removes our guilt before God by his sacrifice. So let's start actually in chapter 52 and verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Isaiah says, my servant will act wisely. The servant of the Lord will act wisely. The servant of the Lord will act in obedience, will act according to God's purpose. The servant of the Lord will trust in the Lord even when his life hangs in the balance. My friends, it's always, always wise to do the Lord's will and obey what he says and to trust him even when it doesn't look like he's in control. God is in control. He said, my servant will be raised up. 
And Jesus Christ was raised up from the grave, the resurrection. He said he will be lifted up. That is the ascension back to heaven. And he will be exalted. Where is Jesus Christ today? He's seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. What is he doing there, my friends? He always lives to intercede for those who come to him. So you're thinking to yourself, man, I wish some of these people would pray for me once in a while. Why is nobody praying for me? Let me tell you what the Bible tells us, that Jesus Christ is praying for you. And he's praying for me. And that gives me confidence. And that gives me hope. And that encourages me. He's exalted to the right hand of God, seated at the highest place. But just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured. This was such a bad train wreck. This was such a bad accident that he almost couldn't be identified. He was so marred, you would look at him, you would think, what, it, what, what kind of animal carcass is that laying by the side of the road? That, that doesn't look like a deer. You know, it was so bad. He was marred beyond human likeness. He was blemished. He was beaten. He was treated inhumanely. Just as that happened to him, just as surely as his suffering is, so will be his cleansing. He will sprinkle many nations. In the Old Testament, sprinkling was always used in the Old Testament sacrifices. When Moses blessed the people, the sacrifices would be given and the blood would be sprinkled. The blood would have went out to, for cleansing, for, for um, forgiveness of sin. Yesterday we saw in Exodus 12 that the blood of the Passover lambs was sprinkled on the doorposts so that the death angel would pass over. Later in Leviticus, we'll learn that the sin offering was to be sprinkled seven times before the altar. We say, a sprinkle a day keeps the odor away. Sprinkling here symbolizes cleansing for sin. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. I mean, if you're the king, you can say whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. Your word is law. You say, so let it be written, so let it be done. You can say, go, and they go. You say, come, and they come. You say, I want a Diet Coke. They bring you a Diet Coke. When you're king, you can say whatever you want. King's mouths will be silenced when they look at him. They won't even be able to, to understand it. won't be able to say anything. It'll be like, you, O king, have the right to remain silent in the face of this perfection and majesty. What they've not been told, they will see. What they've not heard, they would understand. Just the exact opposite of Isaiah's call where he was told, go and speak to this nation, but gotta tell you, Isaiah, they'll be ever hearing and never understanding. They'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. Sometimes when you grow up in the house of God, you just don't get it as well as a newbie. Thank God he still brings newbies into our congregation, gets us all excited again, gets us all fired up again. How does that happen? That happens when we magnify the cross of Jesus Christ and Jesus himself. The kings will be astonished at the plan of God. That God would save men and women and boys and girls, rich and poor, powerful and impotent, young and old, red and yellow and black and white, all by the blood of a sacrifice, which is indeed his only begotten son. It's amazing. It's amazing. And they are, there are those from every kindred and every tribe who get it, who get it. The servant of the Lord, the Messiah, will be exalted. He will be raised up. He will be lifted up. He will be given the name that is above every name. At his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He will be seated at the highest station. He will be living forever at the Father's right hand. And this little paragraph at the end of Isaiah 52 is just Isaiah 53 in a nutshell. It's just a sweetened, condensed version of what's, what he's going to expand now in chapter 53. Chapter 53 gives us the gory details. And before we go on, I just want to say, isn't it interesting in the Gospels when we read the actual accounts of the cross, that they just tell it so clinically. 
You know, we would be like, and then this happened, and then blood spurted here, and then I got blood on my shoes, and then we would be into all the gore and all the detail. And if you read the New Testament carefully, yes, it talks about the blood, yes, it talks about the beatings, but it's just not as detailed as we would want. We'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow. Isaiah 53 in verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Who has believed our message? Who has believed our report? Our report? Who would believe it? Who would believe the message? When Isaiah was called of God, when he had this wonderful experience and he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the tra train of his robe filled the temple, he heard the Lord say, come, who will go for us? And he said, here am I, send me. And the Lord said, go and tell these people, the people of God. He's not preaching on the street corner. He's in the temple. Go and tell the people of God, be ever hearing, never understanding. Be ever seeing, never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And Isaiah's like, what? That's not the ministry that I wanted to sign up for. You know? And he says, Okay, Lord, how long? You know, a year? Uh -uh. Six months? Are you putting me on a, a seven-year plan here? Lord, what's the plan? And the Lord says, until the cities lie ruined without inhabitation, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump of the land. God says, I am cleaning up this place. He said, I'm, you're going to be destroyed. You won't listen. I've told you and told you, my people, I've done everything for you, and you won't listen, so you're going to be destroyed. But in my grace and in my love and in my mercy, I will leave a believing remnant in every generation and every culture. Praise God. He leaves a, re, a, a believing remnant. Are you part of that remnant, my friends? Who would believe this report? Even of the Israelites, not very many. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The arm of the Lord is revealed to some, but even then, not very many are impressed. Not very many are responsive. He will grow up before him as a tender shoot and as a root out of dry ground. Two things here we see, the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. He's a tender shoot. He's helpless. He's human, like a human baby, fragile, and in need of love and care. Tender equals delicate and fragile, as is all human life. And yet, my friends, the suffering servant is a root out of dry ground. It's an anomaly, something that deviates from the general rule. It's irregular. Plants need water. You don't thrive in areas that are so arid and dry. We moved this spring to a new house. God has been so good to us. We downsized, but we actually got a brand new house. It was actually cheaper in our area to get a smaller new house than buy an existing one. And so it's been very fun and exciting, but now we, it rained and rained and rained at the end of uh, you know, April, beginning of May, and then right about the time we put our grass in, it dried up. And I mean, it's in the drought conditions. And so every day we're out there, and we didn't want to spring for a sprinkler system. We didn't want to pay the money. So we got hoses running here and there. We got water going everywhere. And then like not very smart people, we went ahead and did the landscaping too. Keep thinking, it's going to rain, it's going to rain, it's going to rain. I'm out there watering the plants, and I'm actually more into my plants than I've ever been before. But I'm getting kind of tired of watering those plants constantly. And you know what I learned, and this is so interesting, I got some plants from my sister-in-law, and my sister-in-law gave me some sedum. And what you do with sedum, you don't have to get the roots. You can just break off a branch, and you stick it in your ground, and it'll grow. 
It'll grow and it'll become a whole bush. But, she said, you got to water it. you got to water it like crazy. So I have these little shoots, these little stalks of sedum. They're about this tall in like five or six places. Really looks kind of goofy. But I'm really hoping in faith that that's going to produce, okay? You have to have water. But Jesus Christ is a root out of dry ground. He's a divine planting by God in that time and in that place, nurtured and sustained by God himself. Do you love that? I love that. In chapter 50 of Isaiah, we read this. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. This divine servant had an instructed tongue because he was totally in tune with the Father. The design servant sprang up out of nothing. He came from nowhere. And yet, my friends, he's the only hope for us all. He had no beauty. He had no majesty. There was nothing in his appearance to make him desirable. He did not look like an American movie star. He was not like King Saul, a head and shoulders above everyone else. Jesus did not even look like Superman. There was no big S on his chest, okay? All the medieval paintings of Jesus from his infancy to his cross, they have the halo around him. Jesus didn't walk around with a halo on. If you saw him in the street, you'd walk right past him. If he was going too slow in the line in the grocery, you'd skip around him. You wouldn't really recognize him. He's not the type of man that people flock to because of appearance. Outwardly, Jesus was unimpressive and very very ordinary. He was despised and rejected by men. You see, he came into his own, but his own received him not. He was hated by his peers so intensely. They hated him so bad that on that fateful day in Pilate's court, they screamed, crucify him, crucify him, and they let Barabbas, a terrorist, go free. They hated him that bad. He was a man of sorrows. We talk about a man of means, a woman of grace and elegance. He was a man of sorrows. He was a man of deep distress and sadness. In Gethsemane, he told his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Can't you stay here and watch with me for one hour? We're going to talk about that tomorrow. He was pained, he was grieved, he was in distress, and he sweat great drops like blood. Why was he so upset? He was upset because he knew. He knew what was coming. Everyone in that era and that time knew what crucifixion was. It happened all the time. You walked by and you saw it and you averted your eyes. Jesus knew about that. He knew about the physical pain, but that is not what was bothering him. The spotless son of God was worried, was upset, was in distress because he did not want to drink the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath, a mixed drink that is filled with every form of sin, every form of evil, every form of vileness that the spotless Jesus Christ was going to drink for us. was going to drink it, not because of his sin, but because of ours. What sorrow, what grief, what suffering, how unfair. And Jesus said, Lord, Father, God, if there's any way, take this from me. But it's not what I want, it's what you want. And we're focusing more on the physical aspect of it today, but really for Jesus Christ, it wasn't the physical aspect. It was the spiritual aspect of taking our sin, becoming our sin, and becoming separated from his Father. He's, he was like one from whom people hide their faces. You know, sometimes they say we're getting very desensitized, and I think we are, to violence and things, but sometimes you still see a graphic scene on TV and you just cover your face. You don't want to look, is it done? 
Occasionally you see a severely wounded soldier or a handicapped child and you turn your eyes away. You just don't want to make eye contact. Like one from men whom hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem, the NIV says. We make such a big deal about self-esteem. We want our kids to have self-esteem. You know, everybody on the soccer team gets a trophy. You know, they're, they're getting to the point where they're not even grading anymore because we want these kids to have good self-esteem. Everybody's a winner. Jesus was held in low esteem. Or in fact, they esteemed him not. They didn't even bother. He was disdained, he was detested, he was looked down on with aversion, with contempt. He was regarded as worthless considered repugnant. He was a king without a country. He was a rabbi without any students. He was a man without a wife or without children. Verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We considered him stricken and smitten and afflicted by God because the Jews of Jesus' day believed that Jesus was on the cross suffering for his own sin, for his own crimes. They mocked him. You said you can save others. Why don't you come down and save yourself? And they believed with all their heart the scripture that said anyone who was hung on a tree is under God's curse. They, in that day, in that time, firmly believed that Jesus Christ was getting exactly what he deserved. My friends, that is so not true. He was getting exactly what they deserved and what I deserved. He took up, he picked up, he carried our infirmities, our sicknesses, our afflictions, our disease, our evil. And he carried our sorrows, our pain, our grief, and our suffering. And so oftentimes when we go through hard things and we're suffering a little bit, we say, that's not fair. That's not fair. How can this happen? I paid my taxes. I did this. I did this. We built this new house, and you know what happened? They messed up the concrete in the basement. They were pouring the concrete on the day that it was raining, and the sub pump wasn't plugged in and didn't work. And I'm thinking, what? Now we got to deal with this mess. That's not fair. We think life is so not fair. Let me tell you something. Jesus didn't go around saying, life's not fair. This isn't fair, Lord. Jesus did what God asked him to do. He did it for you, and he did it for me. He was pierced for our transgressions. Our actions that go beyond the limits and the boundaries of God, our intentional and our unintentional sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Iniquities are deliberate acts of defiance, of wickedness, of viciousness, of gross injustice. I know that it's wrong to say this, but I'm going to tell her. That's iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The penalty for our sin was paid in full. You do the crime, you got to do the time. You and I did the crime, but Jesus did the time for us. By his wounds we are healed. The only cure for the disease of sin, which has got us all, it's a virus, we've all got it, it's affecting us all. The only cure for the disease of sin is not an antidepressant. It's not chemotherapy. It's not radical surgery. It's not take two of these and call me in the morning. My friends, it's not Diet Coke. It's not aspirin. It's not booze. It's not sex. The only cure is to look at Jesus. Like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. When they were bitten, we've all been bitten by sin, by the snake of sin. You want to be cured, you've got to look up and live. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All we have turned to our own way. We're, we've all gone astray. We've kind of gone astray as a herd of sheep in route. Once heads off, they all follow. You know, they're a bunch of followers. We're guilty by association with Adam. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and we're all guilty also by personal conduct. 
Sometimes we turn to our own way and we don't go off the deep end into sin, but we just do my things, what I want. This is a song we sing, I'll do it my way, right? And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a slam to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, and though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was silent. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. He was the lamb of God taking on the sin of the world. And he was silent as a sheep is before her shearers. You know, I've, I've seen this at the county fair when they go to shear sheep and they just sit there so still and they don't make a sound. You know, this is what was happening. He was being taken out by judgment. They laid the cross on his back. He marched up that outside that city gate. There were people all around, and not once did he scream, this isn't fair. Not once did he scream, somebody help me, somebody get me out of here. Like the little kid in church who's really, really acting up. And mom warns him, and he doesn't stop, and mom warns him again. So pretty soon she grabs his hand, she picks him up, puts him on her hip, she's walking out, and he turns around and he says, Mommy, I'll be good, Mommy, I'll be good. And she gets to the door of the sanctuary and he grabs the edge and he turns back, Somebody help me! <laughs> Jesus didn't cry out for anybody to help him. He went willingly, he went knowingly, he went because it had to be a cross of love. He went for you for me and he didn't open his mouth he was taken away by oppression and by judgment illegal trials in the middle of the night a kangaroo court that wanted him dead that had planned his death a traitor out of his own midst he was betrayed by a kiss a kiss a sign of love and affection false witnesses but could not get their story straight he was never convicted of a crime yet he was given the death sentence he was cut off from the land of the living. And who can speak of his descendants? One translation says, to die in the Jewish culture without children was to die indeed. The land was tied up with the family and to have no children was considered a deep sign of God's favor. But in the newer NIV it says, yet who of his generation protested? Who said, this isn't fair? Let's get a campaign. Let's march on the courthouse. Let's get signs. Let's hold a prayer vigil. Let's get him set free. He's innocent. He's innocent. He's innocent. Who protested? No one. Not one. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was crucified between two convicted felons. And he would have been thrown along with them into a mass grave, but he was with the rich in his death because God provided through a secret disciple named Joseph of Arimathea who laid him in his own brand new tomb. Though he had done no violence, what had Jesus done? He'd gone about teaching and he preaching and healing. What had he done wrong? Was he, was he a militant? Was he trying to get people to revolt against Rome? He had done no violence. I got to tell you, friends, I don't think of myself as a violent person, but I've done violence in my life. I mean, I've got mad and done things, you know, that were really not pretty. I had a problem in my earlier years. I would get so mad and get so upset. And in a certain situation, I always felt like I was getting backed in the corner. And my husband, bless his heart, we've been married 32 years in a couple weeks. He learned not to back me in a corner because when you back me in a corner, things get broken. I mean, remote controls get sailing across the floor. One time we were at his parents' and I, we were clearing off the table and we got into a row and I picked up that Corel serving bowl and I smashed it so hard. The whole family's out in the pool. The whole windows are wide open. Everybody knew. You know, would you like a daughter-in-law like that? I mean, come on, you know. 
but God is faithful and there is such a thing as sanctification and he does change us, right? We don't have to stay where we, where we were. He had done no violence in his actions and there was no deceit in his mouth. His speech was pure, it was true, it was accurate, and it was right. Verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great. And he'll divide the spoils with the strong. He'll divide the spoils with the strong. Book of Revelation, over and over again, seven letters to seven churches, to the one who overcomes, to the one who is victorious, I will give, I will give, I will give. What great grace. What great grace. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. Now other translations say, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. What in the world does that mean? It means that God's purpose in saving mankind was fulfilled in Christ. It pleased the God to bruise him because this was the only course of action possible to set right the wrong. This was the only way to redeem fallen man, bring us back into a right relationship with God. My friends, this is not cosmic child abuse. This is what people today will tell you, oh, I can't believe in a God who would kill his own son. That's cosmic child abuse. That's what postmodern critics claim. My friends, this was God's plan from the beginning. This isn't even plan B. This is the first plan. What does Revelation say? The lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Before the world was created, God knew Jesus was going to have to die. I'm telling you, if I'm Jesus, I'm sitting up in heaven, and I'm saying, now, Lord, come on now, Father. Now, really, isn't there a better way that we can do this? This was not plan B. This was God's plan from the creation of the world. Do you really sure you want to make man? I don't know about that Eve. She's going to be a troublemaker. God did it anyway. Why? It had to be a cross of love. God so loved the world that he gave. For God to bruise his only son, it had to be a cross of love. For God to cause him to suffer. For God to make his life an offering for guilt. My friends, that's the entire point. You know, we don't want to go around feeling guilty and we don't want to feel bad, so we drink, we, we uh, you know, smoke, we go to the movies, we run around, we do whatever so we don't have to have that guilty feeling. But every single one of us stands guilty before a holy God and we need somebody to take the guilt away. And Jesus Christ came to take away our sin and our guilt and our shame. Why? So we can walk out as free people with our heads held high. So we can say glory to God in the highest. He's still in the business of saving souls. Who can speak of his descendants? Biologically, no one. He didn't have any descendants. But spiritually speaking, the descendants of Christ? Oh my goodness. A great multitude that no one can count from every tribe, nation, people, and language, standing before the throne and the Lamb and singing, Holy are you, Lord God Almighty, worthy is the Lamb to open the book, open the scroll. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, after the suffering of his soul, not just his body, but his soul. Separation from God. Crying out from a broken heart tomorrow. Tomorrow, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He will see the light of life because, my friends, Jesus is the light of life. He will be satisfied because the mission will be accomplished. It will be paid in full. It's that good feeling you get when you've worked so hard all day and your back kind of hurts, but you look around, man, that yard looks good. The house looks good. It's that satisfaction of a job well done. It's the satisfaction of joy in the end result. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, 
by the knowledge of Jesus Christ is how we are made right with God, made righteous. He will bear their iniquities. He will bear. He will bear. He did bear, and he will bear. It's the ongoing nature of the work of atonement on the cross. Jesus is able to save completely because he ever lives to intercede for those who come to him. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He'll divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Wow, what a privilege to even read this, let alone try to teach it. Okay, now, what does it mean? What does it mean? Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Who are they talking about? Who's the suffering servant? Pious Jews today believe it's the nation of Israel, that Israel has suffered so much. That's what they believe. But what does the New Testament book tell us? The New Testament tells us something different in Acts chapter 4. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and he met on his way another Jew just like him. The same skin color and the same background, right? Does anybody know? You guys with me? No, he didn't. He met an Ethiopian eunuch, another man from another culture with another skin color, an important official. He, this guy had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And he was on his way home, and he's riding in the chariot, and he's reading. And in that day, when you read, you read aloud. So he's reading aloud the book of Isaiah the prophet. And Phil, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot, chariot and stay near it. So Philip, he's jogging, man. He must have been in great shape. He's running up beside the chariot, and he heard the man reading Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading, brother? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come, come get in my car and come talk to me about this. And this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the, the eunuch says to Philip, tell me, please, what's the talking, who's the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? And get this. Then Philip, beginning with that very passage of scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. The suffering servant is Jesus. It's a detailed description of the cross. 700 years before Bethlehem, before Gethsemane, before Calvary. The Isaiah 53 is the heart of Isaiah. It's the heart of the Old Testament. My friends, it's the heart of the gospel. Christ's suffering will lead to exaltation and glory. And as we look at Isaiah 53, I want to tell you verses 4 through 6 are the main thing Verses 4 through 6. I'm going to find my page here. <clears throat> it's personal. It's personal. Put your name in it. Verse 4. For surely he took up Bonnie's pain, and he bore Bonnie's suffering. Yet Bonnie considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he, Jesus, was pierced for Bonnie's transgressions. He was crushed for Bonnie's iniquities. The punishment that brought Bonnie peace was upon him. And by his wounds, Bonnie is healed. Praise God. Praise God for the substitute. Jesus died in my place. We know about substitutes, right? You like sports? You like hockey? The whole team substitutes at the same time. There's a line change. You're playing basketball. The starter's getting a little tired. You want to save him for the last quarter. You substitute someone in who goes in and takes his place. We get that. We get that. Do you understand that Jesus subbed in for you and I to bear our punishment? He died in our place and our on our behalf. My friends, it's one thing to believe in God. It's one thing to believe that Jesus was real. It's one thing to believe that Jesus died on the cross. You know, you can rattle that off like anything and it means nothing. But it's a complete another thing to believe that Jesus died in my place on my behalf. That makes it personal. I love stories. I love a good story. I love to read. I read way too much. 
I like to read good stories and watch them on TV and the movies if they're good. You may be familiar with the Hunger Games. You know, postmodern setting, they have this, this society that has been post-apocalyptic and now they've settled into these 12 districts and this is how they keep the peace. They have a reaping every year where two tributes from each district have to go and fight to the death. They have to go and give their lives and then they have victors, but they have to go kill all those other kids. Well, this is what happens in, this, in the story. Primrose Everdeen's name is drawn. She's a 12-year-old little girl. It's the first time her name's been in the lottery, and she's drawn, and her sister Katniss stands up and volunteers to go in her place. And Katniss is a substitute for Primrose, and Katniss goes to the Hunger Games. But Katniss doesn't die for anybody. She lives, and she fights, and she goes on to do horrible things that she must live with for the rest of her life. Let me tell you, that's a poor example of Jesus, our substitute, who volunteered for us. He went to his death so that we might live. I want you to see a video right now. I want to give you a little warning. It's definitely PG-13. It's, it's scenes from the Passion of the Christ. This will be the, the most graphic video that you'll see. But even if you need to close your eyes, I get it. Every time I watch it, I want to be a man who hides my face from this. But don't let that detract from the words. Hear the words of the song taken straight out of Scripture. transgressions he was crushed for our sins the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds by his wounds we are healed he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our sins the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. We are healed by your sacrifice. Let the transgressions and crushed for our sins the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his transgressions he was crushed for our sins the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds by his wounds we are
700 years before this happened, Isaiah saw it. Before the creation of the world, in love, God predestined you and me to be adopted into his family. The only way that we could be adopted was if Jesus bore our sin and suffered in our place. He is our substitute for sin. He gave it all so that you and I might have life. When he hung on that cross, at the end, you know, he was up there, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, it is finished. In the Greek, that word is te telestai. It means paid in full. It's a commercial term. It's an accounting term. Jesus paid the debt that you and I could never pay. He paid it at the price of his love. You, my friends, it had to be a cross of love. And you know what I, when I think, I think those stripes, those beatings, that's mocking, that's what I deserve. He did nothing. He did it for you and me. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the suffering servant. It's talking about Jesus. Do you get the connection? I think you get the connection. What is to stop you from believing on Jesus, repenting of your sin, and calling on his name for salvation? Who has believed our report? Have you heard this all your life? Is this old hat? Does this make you uncomfortable? You don't want to think about it? You want to think about the nice Jesus? You want to pray to the little, little baby Jesus, thank you for this day? That's not the Jesus we pray to. We pray to the crucified, buried, risen, exalted, and coming again Jesus, our King. And I got to tell you, friends, as graphic and as scary as that looks, when he comes back next time, it's going to be even scarier. He is going to have eyes like fire, feet like brass. He's going to glow. And it's going to be then, as we used to say in my childhood, then it will be everlasting too late. So what do you do with the sacrifice of Jesus? Man, how do you apply that to your life? What difference does that make when the doctor says, you got cancer? you got Alzheimer's. What difference does the death, the burial, and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus make in your daily life? When you're out of a job, when you're struggling with finances, when your kids are going crazy, when nobody understands you, when your church is falling apart, what difference does it make to look at the cross? Think about his love. Philip's like, Hey, what would prevent me from being baptized and becoming a follower of Christ? And Philip went on and baptized him. What would prevent you from being baptized, from joining a church, from making a commitment to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ? This had to be a cross of love. For God to bruise his only son. Jesus, what a sacrifice to reach us. It had to be a cross of love. The cross of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of history. It, it, all the Old Testament prophets looked forward to it, and all ever since then we look back at it. It is the focal point. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father. He's the only way. The cross is the bridge, the only bridge. From our sinfulness, our shame, our vileness, our ugliness, our depravity, into the grace, love, and mercy of God. There's no other way except through the cross. The only way to cross over to the other side. Life, blessing, eternal life, fellowship with God, blessings and benefits, enjoyment. The only way to cross over the other side is through the cross of Jesus Christ. I trust that this is a good reminder for all of us that Jesus paid it all. Now all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Shall we pray? Our Father God, we just, we're speechless. 
We don't know what to say. We stand in awe of you and your plan and your love. How you can think this out, it's amazing. It's, in, it's impossible. It doesn't make sense. And yet, Lord, to those who receive it, to those who believe it, the power of God unto salvation, oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for bearing my sin, for, for taking my beatings, for being mocked, ridiculed, spit on, and slapped for me. Help me, O oh God, to live my life as a true follower of the Lamb. May the cross ever be for me. May I never, ever forget the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.